Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And welcome to 2022, I guess. It's amazing how time just flies by. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We are at the end of this wonderful chapter. The title of this message is The Marks of a Pentecostal Church. I hope that doesn't make you too nervous, but I hope you will understand what that meant or what that means. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Listen to the reading of God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. You may have noticed that when it comes to uh, sermon titles, I'm not the most creative guy. Um, For instance... Uh, Since I'm preaching through the book of Acts, I have entitled this series, can you guess? Acts. When preaching through the Ten Commandments, guess what the name was? The Ten Commandments. Ephesians. Did you get the pattern? It's Ephesians. I do, however, want to draw your attention to the subtitle that I have given to this series. Resurrection Power Unleashed. It was Acts, Resurrection Power, Unleashed. The point of that subtitle is to say this. The crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus ushered in the new creation. Now, do you want practical proof that this is indeed the case? Here's the proof. We worship on Sundays instead of? On Saturdays, we worship on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week. Why? Well, there's only one event powerful enough to change the old order. The old Sabbath was rooted in the creation of the world and Israel's redemption from Egyptian bondage. The new Sabbath, however, meaning Sunday, the first day of the week, is rooted in the new creation, and redemption from the bondage of sin, all of which is the work of the Lord Jesus. And he rose from the dead on a Sunday. The coming of the Spirit, which also took place on a Sunday, is the supernatural proof of this cosmic reality. The Spirit of God descended upon man because Jesus ascended as king. And as Acts chapter 2 verse 39 says, He, Jesus, now has the authority to call people to himself from all over the world. In other words, due to his all-encompassing authority, the risen and exalted Jesus is not dependent on governments, rulers, 
presidents, political parties, social trends, or favorable cultural conditions in order to carry out his saving purposes. His sheep will listen to his voice because he calls them by the spirit whom he himself has sent into the world. As one contemporary historian said very truthfully, and I quote, whichever period of church history we are studying, it is always worth pausing and reminding ourselves of this. The entire history of the Christian church is rooted in one central reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus of Nazareth had not risen, there would be no church history. The rest of the story told in this, these pages flow out of the resurrection, end quote. So this morning, we come face to face with the beginning of the rest of the story. In this sense, then, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 is a description, a picture, a true portrait of a Pentecostal church. These verses give us a picture of the historical unleashing of the power of the resurrected and exalted Christ as he gives his spirit to his new covenant people and exercises authority from his throne over all the kingdoms of the world. Now, with that in mind, let us consider the first mark of, true, of a true Pentecostal church. A Pentecostal church is a taught community, a taught Community, verse 42, the beginning of verse 42, and they devoted themselves to what? What is the first thing that it says? The apostles teaching. This is not the first time that we see the word devoted being applied to the first believers. The word showed up for the first time in chapter one, verse 14. It is somewhat revealing to see that within the first two chapters of Acts, the church is said to be devoted Twice. Now, the word devoted has several synonyms. Constancy, continuity, perseverance, etc. My favorite one is this. Steadfast attention. Steadfast attention. That's what devoted means. For instance, some people are steadfast in their attention to social media. They don't want to miss out on anything. So they are always checking for the newest developments in the lives of people, many of whom they don't even know. But they are devoted. There's a lot of devotion going on in our day, but not necessarily the good kind. Therefore, let this verse stand as a good corrective to some or maybe many of us. The devotion, the steadfast attention of the first believers had worthy objects. Now for this particular point, I just, want, I just want to highlight the first one mentioned. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, meaning their steadfast attention was given to what the apostles had to say. This means they had to prioritize those moments in which the apostles explain redemptive truth and its application to life. It was a priority to the first believers. These Christians made it their aim to receive the teaching of the apostles. They were taught constantly 
I truly believe this is a massively important corrective for our day. Let me just say, I, I believe it is a sad reality that so many who would be quick to call themselves Christians are very slow to devote themselves to biblical teaching. And herein lies the essence of many problems. Too many people are easily detached, easily detached from persistent, consistent, and biblically faithful teaching and preaching. And what is that? Well, that is a recipe for disaster. Down through the centuries, the Christians that stood in the face of opposition, turmoil, and distress were the ones who devoted themselves to being taught. So just in case your devotion to the teaching of scripture is waning or decreasing, please remember the words recorded for us in Ephesians chapter 4. In that chapter, Paul tells us that when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Remember that? He gave gifts to men. What are those gifts? Well, he names them. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. To do what? To equip the saints. In other words, the preaching and teaching ministry of the local church is an expression of the love of Christ for you. I want you to think of that. The teaching and preaching ministry of the local church is an expression of Christ's love for you. He loves you and therefore he has gifted the church, his body with teachers and preachers and evangelists. The faithful proclamation of the word through preaching and teaching is Christ's care and love for his bride, the church. So don't underestimate the power of the preached and taught word over your life. Make it a priority. Make it a priority. Number two, a Pentecostal church is a dependent community. A dependent community. Notice what is the second thing that they devoted themselves to. I'm sorry, the, the fourth thing in, in verse 42. The prayers. The prayers. So dependent community, what do I mean by that? Well, the first believers were dependent on the Lord as demonstrated by their constant engagement in prayer. Verse 42 is the third time, consider that, is the third time in which we are told that the first Christians were a people of prayer. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 14, and the second time in chapter 1, verse 24. But this is far from being the last time we will hear about this. In the book of Acts alone, Prayer is mentioned as a corporate activity of the church at least 14 times. 14 times they are said to be together in prayer. Unquestionably, one of the marks of a church in which the spirit is at work is the constant need for prayer among its members. In fact, I would even say this on a personal note, uh, you can gauge the the spiritual condition of your own soul by your need of prayer. Your prayer life says much about what is taking place in your heart. Now, the flip side of that is also true. Nothing is more dangerous to the health of the soul and the strength of the church than prayerlessness. Nothing is more dangerous to the soul than prayerlessness. I believe part of the reason our Lord is allowing 
all these chaos around us is not so much so that we might feel good about ourselves for knowing all the answers to this or that question, but so that we might pray. So that we might pray. So let me ask you this, personal, personal questions. Are you overwhelmed? Are you anxious? Are you doubtful? Then this is what you need to do. Devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. Be in constant communion with the Lord and in the process, admit your weakness apart from him. Discipline yourself in the practice of prayer. Don't miss the fact that our text doesn't say that they automatically prayed. It doesn't say that. Rather, they devoted themselves to prayer. It doesn't just happen. Do you realize that? It doesn't just happen. It takes intentionality. You must discipline yourself in prayer. So pray when you feel like praying, but also pray when you don't feel like it. You must pray. Don't go by your feelings or the circumstances around you. Go by the example of these first Christians. They devoted themselves. It was an intentional act on their part. They prayed. They prayed. Number three, a Pentecostal church is an awestruck community. Awestruck community. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It is important to mention here that this was a transitional time in which signs and wonders, miracles were called for in order to confirm the dawning of the new creation in Christ. So picture it like this. If you were a Jew or a Gentile living at that time, and you heard someone like the apostle Peter giving this message about a man named Jesus of Nazareth being given all authority and sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over all things, you might want some kind of confirmation. You might want some kind of confirmation. Thus, to the apostles, the Lord Jesus gave these unique gifts, miraculous gifts, signs and wonders. The apostles didn't just speak the word, but through them, the word was confirmed. The point was this. Yes, Jesus is exalted. And the miracles and wonders and signs that you are seeing is the power of Jesus through the spirit. He truly is Lord. Believe in him. Trust him. Well, then what about now? What about us? Why can we see these signs and wonders. Well, let me tell you what I think we see in the Bible with the passing of time. And as you get deeper and deeper into the new Testament, you begin to see less and less mentions of signs and wonders. So in the absence of signs and wonders, can we still experience all? Well, the answer is yes. Here's how notice this in our day. God performs the greatest miracle through the simplicity of preaching. Have you noticed? Have you realized that? God performs the greatest miracle through the simplicity of preaching. Because through preaching, he brings dead people to life. So we have no reason to say, well, we have no more awe and wonder. Yes, we do. 
because the Lord still saves people from sin, which links us to our next points. Number next, a Pentecostal church, a Pentecostal church is a believing community, believing community. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, verse 44 takes us back to verse 41. Verse 41, the people devoted to the apostles' teaching are those who had believed, or as verse 41 says, the people who had received the word. This is why when you decide to become a member of our church, we take you through a process of membership. The ultimate goal of this process is simply one, to hear you say in both written and spoken form, that you have come to believe the word, that you agree with what it says about you, about Christ, about grace. Notice, please, also the sense of separation from the world. Those who believed, those who believed had all things in common. Faith takes us out of the world, as it were, and brings us into a new condition that the world knows nothing about. Listen, my brothers and sisters, our greatest commonality, our greatest commonality is our faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing greater. There's no greater commonality among us. It is not race, looks, language, work, career, none of those things. Our greatest commonalities are faith in the Lord Jesus and that we believers in the Lord are seeking to conform our lives to the Lordship of Christ. Be careful then not to allow other pursuits in your life to take precedence over this all encompassing reality. We are believers in the Lord. We believe in Jesus. It is that simple. We are believers in Christ. We're working in the same direction. Next, a Pentecostal church is a fellowshipping community, fellowshipping community verses 45 through 47. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking of bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I believe verses 45, 46, and the first part of verse 47 have this one theme in common, and that is fellowship, fellowship. However, please notice that the fellowship experienced by these first Christians manifested itself in several different ways. First, their fellowship was expressed through generosity, through generosity. Verse 45, it's a very interesting verse. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Let me ask you this. Is this communism? I literally, I read in a book, the author said they were communist. I could not find the reference. Um, but yeah, someone said uh, th they were communist based on verse 45. But please notice that these Christians were selling their possessions. Did you get that word? Their possessions and belongings, meaning no one lost their right to private property. No one lost their right to private property. Rather, they willingly sold what, what was rightfully theirs and they shared it 
with others. This was not forced, but voluntary. This is true generosity, and it is the work of the Spirit of Christ. Now, does this mean we ought to do the same? Should we ask Jesse now to go and sell his house and share the money with us? I don't know why I thought of you. (laughs) You're just looking at me, so sorry about that. It's too late to take it back. (laughs) So should we ask Jesse to do this? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that the author of Acts, Luke, is here describing a church in which the spirit was at work. So we are called to be generous and the spirit himself leads us to generosity. But we're not being commanded to sell our possessions and belongings just because. Now, having said that, the gospel itself is our model for generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul uses the very example of Jesus to call us to generosity, who being rich became poor for our sake. So yes, if the spirit is at work, then we will be a generous people. So maybe we're not called to sell our homes and private property at all times and everywhere. Nevertheless, no. That, for example, this is practical, your tithes and offerings are often used to help relieve your brothers and sisters who find themselves in financial need. Did you know that? Your tithes and offerings are often used to help relieve brothers and sisters who find themselves in financial need. Why do I say that? I say that because your tithes and and offerings are not just an issue of obedience, These are issues of spirit-led generosity and Christian fellowship. Your tithes and offering, your, your giving is part of our fellowship as believers. Now, as most of you have noticed, we don't pass the offering plate around. When was the last time we did that? I don't think we've ever done it. We don't pass the offering plate around. We have a box out in the foyer. For your tithes and offerings. This is true. But please don't misunderstand this. The fact that we don't pass the plate around does not mean we think giving is unimportant. We don't think that. Generous giving. It's a very important part of the Christian life. Remember that this section is coming right out of Pentecost, which means that immediately tells us that generosity in the church is also the work of the spirit in us. So don't underestimate the importance of giving generously to the work of the ministry. Now, second, their fellowship was expressed through togetherness, togetherness. Verse 36, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts togetherness. I think we're losing sight of togetherness, physical togetherness, being together in the same place. Uh, In light of uh, much of what's taking place in our current world, let me extend a brief but timely word of caution. Be careful with anything. Be careful with anything that tempts you into isolation or separation from the body of Christ. 
Be careful with anything that tempts you into isolation or separation from the body of Christ. And I say that as an introvert. I'm an introvert, believe it or not. Temptations like that are very easy for me. But be careful. Christians need to be together. Third, their fellowship was expressed through worship. Through worship. First part of verse 47. They were praising God. Let me ask you, when you come here on Sundays to gather with God's people, how often do you remind yourself of the purpose that brings us here? Namely, worship. How often do you intentionally remind yourself, I am here to worship? Is that your primary purpose? And fourth, their fellowship was expressed through a good testimony. Notice verse 47 as well, and having favor with all people. Now, obviously, there will be times when inevitably the church falls into disfavor with the world around it, especially when we stand for truth. So I don't think we need to understand this to be a call to follow the course of this world so that they like us. That's not what it's saying. The point rather is what Paul said in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all, not at the expense of truth. Never at the expense of truth. But at this point, I would like to ask the following question. How can any of this happen? Or more generally speaking, how is the church even possible? It's a pretty high standard, isn't it? How is the church even possible? How is this community described here even real? Well, this leads us to our next point. A Pentecostal church is a supernatural community. It's a supernatural community. The last part of verse 37, and the Lord Notice that the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. The church is a supernatural community. The end of verse 47 takes us back to verse 39. The true church can only be created by God himself. The church is not a man-made community. It is a God created community. The same exalted Lord who has been given authority to call people to himself is the one who grants the spirit to his new covenant people and brings them into his fold. It is Jesus Christ, the exalted God man. Once again, we see here Jesus keeping his promise. What did he tell the disciples? I will build what my church here. We're seeing a historical outworking of that promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Notice that it doesn't say the Lord asked permission to the people to add them to his church. Can you imagine if he said that? How ridiculous it would sound. The Lord doesn't need permission. He simply adds them. He grants them faith. He calls them to himself and he adds them to his body. Now, this is directly connected to our next and final point. But before we get there, let me see if I can draw an important insight from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, seen in its entirety. Please pay attention to this. In his lectures on Calvinism, 
Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said that any worldview capable of sustaining us in life must meet three specific requirements. Our worldview must explain, number one, our relationship to God, our relationship to man, and our relationship to the world. Three things. I believe Kuiper was absolutely correct. After all, these are the three main areas of human existence. God, man, and the world. Please notice with me how Christianity meets all three requirements as expressed in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. First, we relate to God in Christ as we hear and read his word preached and taught. Second, we relate to one another through our fellowship in Christ, and thus we love each other. And third, we relate to the world by being witnesses to Christ, thus we expand his kingdom. And here's precisely where I want to turn to our final point, which is a note of hope. A note of hope. The church is a growing community. The church is a growing community. I want to finish by drawing your attention to the smallness of this first community of Christians. Yes, it was over 3,000 strong, but in the big scheme of things, it was a very small beginning, wasn't it? 3,000. Someone pointed out that this is how things work in the history of redemption, as we see it in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Consider what happened in the Garden of Eden, for instance. After Adam and Eve fell, the progress of sin was not immediately felt by them as much as we feel it now. After thousands of years of progress, sin's weightiness and wickedness is much more detectable now than it was then. Sin went from Cain hating his brother Abel to families hating other families to nations hating other nations. Over the course of thousands of years, sin has spread and its evil effects are more and more noticeable today. The Garden of Eden did not become Sodom and Gomorrah in an instant. But just within a few chapters in Genesis, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The point is that the effects of sin started somewhat small. The same is true with regard to Christ's kingdom. It always seems to start small. For instance, all we get in Genesis 3.15 is that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Small beginnings for such a cosmic plan. Fast forward into the New Testament and now you see Peter preaching that Christ, the seed of the woman, came, lived, died, was raised, ascended into heaven, and now is seated at the right hand of God. The promise has been fulfilled. Jesus of Nazareth is king. The Holy Spirit has been given to him, and now he's building his church. But once again, the beginnings seem to have been small. All we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is a few thousand believers in Christ. Compared to the whole Roman Empire and the rest of the world, these were truly small 
beginnings. But this is how the work in the history of redemption takes place. We could even say, in fact, that this is God's plan. This is God's plan. I will now seek to prove this to you. Do you remember our memory verse for the month of December? That was literally a few days ago. I hope you still remember. It came from the Old Testament. It starts with Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah, good job. Good job. Yeah. Just a little bit of help. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses six through seven. That was our memory verse for the month of December. Now, please turn your Bibles there because I think this is important to, to notice. Isaiah chapter nine, verses six through seven. You shouldn't have to turn there because obviously you know it by memory. Some of you know it in Hebrew even. That would be really cool if you did. Isaiah chapter nine, verses six through seven. Please follow the reading of this incredible passage. Incredible passage. After we read it, I will draw your attention to one key word. One key word. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, before I point out the the key word, let me ask you, has this government started? Has this government started yet? Or to put it differently, Is Jesus already reigning from his throne? Well, I believe the answer has to be yes. If the answer is no, then I have no idea what Peter was talking about in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, in verse 33, 34, and 35, says that the prophecy of David of Psalm 110, where it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, was historically fulfilled in the ascension and exaltation of Christ. It is difficult to deny that Peter's words confirm undeniably that at the moment of Christ's exaltation, he began to reign as king. He has been reigning as the God-man for over 2,000 years. Consider that fact. The God-man, the God-man has been on his throne, on the throne of David for the last 2,000 years. Isn't that exciting? This means yes. It is exciting. The God-man has been on his throne for the last 2,000 years, literally reigning. I lost my place. I got excited. Even before the exaltation, Jesus had already told his disciples all authority, not just part of it, all authority where in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a lot of authority, all authority. So yes, the government of which Isaiah spoke in his prophecy has already started. Jesus is reigning right now as king. But there is a word in Isaiah's prophecy that has kept my attention for a while. In his original prophecy, 
How does Isaiah describe the progress of Christ's government? He uses a very interesting word. In verse 7 of Isaiah 9, how does it start? Of the increase. Increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Why would Isaiah describe the kingdom, the government of this Messiah, with the word increase? As far as I know, when something increases, the immediate and obvious implication is that it hasn't reached full size yet. Correct? When you increase in knowledge, the obvious implication is that you don't have all knowledge. Increase means growth. So is Jesus reigning right now? Yes, he was exalted and he sat at the right hand of God. Well then, where is his kingdom? It is increasing. It is increasing. In Acts chapter 1 verse 15, there were only 120 disciples. By the time you get to Acts chapter 2 verse 41... The number had increased to over 3,000. In Acts 2.47, we were told that the Lord himself, the exalted Christ by the Spirit, added to their number those who were being saved. The exalted Jesus started his kingdom with just a few. 2,000 years later, that kingdom has grown to millions upon millions upon millions. And guess what? It keeps increasing. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Do you believe those words? There will be no end. It will continue to increase as Christians live their lives to the glory of God and proclaim the gospel of the grace of God. The Lord himself continues to add to their numbers those who are being saved. Nothing can stop him. As this continues generation after generation after generation, one day, as prophet Habakkuk said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ever since Pentecost, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord began to spread, hence the words of Jesus to his disciples in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, go and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is what the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years, filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. When we go to Guatemala, we're filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. If you are a believer today, it is only because Jesus has been building his kingdom ever since in the power of his spirit. He has given you faith. He has brought you to himself. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord has reached you. 2,000 years later. In 1912, a retired German officer published a book titled Germany and the Next War. 
Now, his point was to say that if Germany was to remain in power, they needed to accept the idea of ongoing conflict and be willing to engage in war. Here's the, a quote that sums up his sentiment at that time. And I quote, the natural law upon which all the laws of nature rest is the law of struggle for existence, end quote. Now, these words may ring true to our ears, especially as we consider the current state of our world. It seems like it is all conflict, war, struggle for existence. And there is a real sense in which these words will continue to ring true to our ears as the church, after all, consider this, we are the salt of the earth. Have you thought of that? Do you like that title for yourself? I am salt. As you know, salt, what does it do to open wounds? It's not good. It causes a sting, a sharp pain. If we are the salt of this world, then don't expect the world to like you or to welcome you with open arms. This world will make war against Christians because through their lives and message, Christians give a painful sting to their corruptions. This is why the world reacts violently at times when we call out sin and wickedness. The world does not want salt. So there is a struggle. It certainly can feel that way to our eyes. In that sense, that German officer was correct. We are in a constant struggle. However, these words don't ring true to the ears of the exalted Jesus of Nazareth. He knows no struggles. He only knows triumph and victory. And his victory is to such an extent, to such a degree, that even in our sufferings, our trials, and our sorrows, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord, whom God gives us in victory. Those 3,000 that started following Christ on Pentecost have now multiplied to millions. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So as we close this sermon, and as we open up this brand new year, having considered the lives of the first Christians, I bring to your attention the words of Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7.31. The present form of this world is passing away. The present form of this world is passing away. On 2022, then, let us keep our spiritual eyes on Christ and his kingdom. The one that will never pass away. So what is the invitation? Invest your time, your energy, your resources on that which will endure forever. It will not be wasted. Make much of the body of Christ. Celebrate the salvation of the lost. Witness the baptism of believers. Partake of the Lord's Supper. Join a care group. Gather with other believers. Be generous. Enjoy the fellowship. Trust Christ in your sufferings and sorrows. And above all, devote yourself to prayer and to the preaching of God's word. For the kingdom of Christ will never cease. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this 
Reminder that even in the small beginnings with only 3,000 plus, the kingdom of Christ continues to advance because of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so as we begin, as we end 2021, and as we begin 2022, we look to him, the God-man who is on his throne, high and lifted up, to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. As the world continues to change, as circumstances continue to change, governments change, Societies change. We know that the Lord Jesus remains the same forever. And so help us, Lord, this year to look to him, to not grow weary of looking up into the throne of heaven, and to consider the greatness, the steadfastness, the immovability of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.